The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. Good morning, everyone. If you all could please uh, be seated now and turn to Luke chapter 1 in the scriptures, Luke chapter 1. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's something that uh, Nathaniel asks in scripture. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And with that, there's a a lot of assumption about the place that he's asking about. I I don't know what to compare that to exactly. Maybe it's, can anything good come out of Manassas or something like that, right? (laughs) That's where I live, so. Uh, Nazareth, uh, once the home of an ancient cult, and later it was destroyed by the Assyrians, it's nothing more than a small village in the hills of Israel, the northern hills of Israel. So now it's commercialized. There's a lot of reasons to go back there uh, to look at the history of this place that Jesus once lived. But it really was a small place, not noteworthy. It, It had only a population of about 400 people. In other words, you can just look around here in this room, and the population of Nazareth would fit in this room. In a place like Nazareth, um, you wouldn't find the paved roads or the indoor plumbing that you might find in other parts of the Roman Empire at that time in the prominent cities. In fact, most people would live in small one-room houses that were no bigger than a parking space. Or if you can't picture that, think of like less than half the size of a pickleball court, if that helps you. (laughs) Most of the population would be farmers. And some would be craftsmen, people like Joseph, who would learn carpentry or brick making or other practical skills for the purpose of just building farm tools or simple furniture or, or, or fence posts. And so this wasn't carpentry for an Etsy shop. This was basic building for a moderate wage in a small town with a less than stellar population or reputation, excuse me. Can anything good come from this place? See, this is the kind of place you only stop on your way somewhere else. Some of you were traveling into town for this weekend. And so this is like that town you stopped in to get a happy meal, use the restroom, fill up your donkey as you continue on your journey to somewhere else. It's poor, it's remote, noteworthy only by its bad reputation. And in a place like this with only a few hundred residents, everyone would know each other's business. Additionally, based on the relatively few people in town, you could kind of look around at a young age and get a sense of who was going to be married to whom in that that town. Kind of like it is in church. You look around and and you think, that's a really nice young man. I hope one day he marries my daughter, that kind of thing. And so Mary, who was likely only about 15 or 16 years old, maybe even younger when she was betrothed, she would be no exception. As she was betrothed to be married to Joseph, the young carpenter from a young age. And Joseph would have likely been, based on the time of betrothal in this era, he would have likely been only a few years older than Mary. So a a young man, a teenager himself. And betrothal in this day, it wasn't like these promises that we make to each other that if we're not married by 35, we'll get married. It's not like that in this day. It was a much more formal legal arrangement. It was an agreement that we'll see through, through the action of Joseph, at least the intention of Joseph in Matthew's gospel, that this betrothal could only be broken through a formal divorce. It's a big deal. It's a big deal to Mary and Joseph. Certainly their life is going to be a, a life together. They're, they're dreaming, they're thinking of this life that they're building together and there'd be a preparation progressing for their wedding day. See, they were going to be engaged for about a year prior to their wedding, and they'd be looking ahead to marriage, happy and joyful and excited, having no idea what awaits them. 
Joseph, picture him, the strong, silent type, blue collar, teenage craftsman. Mary, a young teenager, imagining her life with Joseph, planning her wedding, her whole life ahead of her. And suddenly of all people in all places, an angel appears in Nazareth to Mary. Let's look at Luke chapter one, starting in verse 26. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He goes on from there, but I want you to imagine this. Nothing ever happens in Nazareth, nothing noteworthy. And suddenly Mary has this incredible encounter with an angelic being. And I want you to imagine what you would feel in that moment. How would you feel? Overwhelmed, surprised, alarmed, maybe threatened, fearful. Can you imagine what Mary, this young woman, must have been thinking and feeling? Likely, if she's like any of us, she'd be afraid, overwhelmed, stressed, anxious. And in the midst of this terrifying encounter with an angel of the Lord, I know we forget this, but most of the encounters with angels in scripture are pretty frightening. And in the midst of this encounter, Gabriel, this great angel of God, has the audacity to say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Now, the Bible, it's full of imperatives. It's full of instructions for us. But do you know what command is given more than any other in Scripture? Here it is. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Over 150 times in Scripture, we are told not to fear. Some of you th this morning are feeling like Mary, overwhelmed, perhaps anxious, afraid. You don't know how your life is going to play out from this point forward or even this next week is going to play out. Mary had plenty to be afraid of when receiving this news from this angel because she's about to be, and in this context, she is told something that will, will radically redirect her life. Living in a small town where everyone knows her business, unmarried, she's gonna be pregnant. Soon she'll begin to show. And knowing this, she knows that as a result of this, likely she will be disgraced. She will be divorced from the man that she loves. Joseph, who she cares about, will be crushed. Her future hopes forever altered. Her friendships gone. Her reputation tarnished. Not only that, but in rare cases, the law allowed for adulterous women to be put to death. Now, now, I don't think that was what was going to happen to Mary, but certainly in the back of her mind, being a God-fearing woman, she may have feared that. And at the very least, she would be known as a failure, an ungodly woman, a, a disgrace with an illegitimate child. And her son, Jesus, would grow up with rumors surrounding his scandalous birth. Do you think that Mary had anything to feel fearful about, to feel anxious about? And yet the angel leads off by saying, the Lord is with you. Don't be afraid. As often as we see that statement, fear not in scripture, it, almost always this imperative not to fear, we also see this reminder that God is with us. See friends, God's presence is the antidote to your anxiety. God's presence is the answer to your fear. In the midst of your fearful circumstances, you need to know that he is with you. 
that he comforts you, that he stands beside you, that he walks before you. Fear not, not because you have nothing to fear, but because he is with you. I want you to see this. So often we struggle with this because we see this constant imperative in scripture. Don't be afraid, don't be afraid, fear not. And, and some of us would receive that and say, God, that's not helpful. I'm already afraid and now I feel guilty because you're telling me not to be afraid. And so I have this compounding guilt about being fearful. So now I feel twice as bad. But what we need to understand is that this imperative from God to fear not is as much an invitation as it is an imperative. Come to me. Recognize my presence with you. Know that I am with you. Know that you need not be afraid. There is nothing that you fear that I cannot overcome because I am with you. The invitation here is to draw near to God. What are you going through this morning? What are you carrying this morning? What is weighing on you today? Draw near to him. In his presence, we, we come to see his perfect love his perfect love, which casts out fear. So, so God shows up through this, this angel. God brings this angel to Mary and he says, Mary, I have a lot for you to do. I, I want you to raise my son, the son of God. And he's going to be mighty. He is this promised Messiah. He's going to come and, and change the world. And I want you, Mary, of all people, to raise him. Can you imagine that? How many of you uh, have a hard time letting your kid have a cell phone? Anyone? Good for you, right? How many of you have a hard time letting your, your kid or you feel a little bit worried about letting that kid drive for the first time? Some of you. How many of you wouldn't want your teenage kid raising Jesus? <laughs> it's a lot to ask. It's a lot to ask for a couple teenage kids just getting their, their start. And yet when God begins to carry out his plan for salvation of mankind, he doesn't look for super nanny. He, he doesn't look for a PhD in, in child psychology and, and, and with all the newfangled learning techniques or a, a PhD in, in the Bible. No, he looks at his creation and he looks and he, he looks for this fragile teenage girl and he says, I want Mary. I want Mary. But why? Why? Was, was it because she had power or, or prestige or position? No, she had none of those things. God chose Mary because she was godly. She was his. She loved him. God chose Mary because of her heart. Friends, I don't know about you, but I have felt inadequate in life. Have you ever felt inadequate? Like you don't have what it takes? You're not enough? Have you ever felt like you can't really be useful to the kingdom of God, at least not in any, any big way because of all your shortcomings and your failures? Guess what? That is the, exactly the type of person that God loves to use. That's the resume he is looking for. God chose what was powerless to show his power. And so the invitation here is, is draw near to him, pursue godliness, pursue simple righteousness, pursue Christ. And God can and will use you too. The angel says, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. So, so this angel tells Mary that she's going to have a child and about this child, he says three things. Number one, this child will live forever. Number two, this child will be the son of God, God in the flesh. And number three, this child I should say God through this child will become profoundly vulnerable. 
The message that that the angel had just given Mary, it wasn't a a new message. It had been foretold centuries earlier. In John's gospel, Jesus says this. He says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. In other words, Abraham, Moses, David, they all looked forward to the coming of this saving king, the Christ. They knew God was going to save the world somehow, someday. But Mary is the first to hear this name, to hear the name Jesus. Mary is the first to receive directly this message of salvation. Uh, The salvation of the world is coming through a baby, the one that she will bear, a baby born in Bethlehem, a baby named Jesus. She is the first to receive this message that God is coming now to the earth to put on flesh, to dwell among us, to come into our weakness, into our depravity, into our brokenness, into our darkness. She's the first to hear that it's happening now. The first person to hear in history the gospel of Jesus and to receive it. So then in many ways, we can think of Mary as the first Christian. Think about that. The first person to come to this faith in the coming Messiah, Jesus, isn't someone of stature or power, but rather it's an impoverished 15-year-old girl living in a small town in the country. The angel goes on to say that this baby will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And just in case this wasn't clear enough, he says of his kingdom, there will be no end. Even more than that, what he's revealing to her is that the most high will become a child. When we think about relationships, I think any uh, real relationship, any deep relationship like a marriage, in a marriage, it opens us up to the the possibility of being harmed. When we open up our our life to someone else, when we connect our our life to someone intimately, it, it exposes us at least to the potential of harm, to become radically vulnerable. And if Christmas is true and the gospel is true, then the God of the Bible is the only God who actually became vulnerable by leaving his throne on high and becoming a baby, born in poverty. Uh, Think of the the situation of his birth, born in, in a barn, born with no epidural, no doctors, no nurses, just simple lamplight. Have you ever held a newborn baby? and just grasped how radically vulnerable they are, how helpless they are, how unable to sustain themselves they are apart from uh, the, the loving care of their mother at their birth. This is what God chose to do, to come to us, to love us, to take on this radical vulnerability, to take on our weakness. God came down to us in pursuit of us, to love us. Philippians chapter two says this. I love this section of scripture. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He became weak. He became fragile. He became someone who could. He came to get us. He came to rescue you. He came to pay the price for our sins on the cross. This is the gospel. Jesus entering into our weakness, taking our weakness upon himself, substituting himself for us so that through his sacrifice on the cross, we could receive salvation. Dorothy Sayers says it this way. She says, for whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. He had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience 
from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. So, so Gabriel proclaims to Mary that she's going to have this miraculous child and that he's going to live forever, that he's God himself and he's going to become radically vulnerable by becoming a child, coming into our existence and, and to live among us. And Mary doesn't know this yet. You know, we, we sing the song or we listen to it. Mary, did you know that the child that you delivered would soon deliver you? No, she didn't really know. She's heard he's going to live forever. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. She doesn't know the death that he will suffer. She doesn't know what is to come. But here we see Mary's response, not knowing how all this will play out. We see here in her two ways in which she responds. And as we look at this response, we can reflect on our own hearts and think how we can live in response to God in the same way in our own life. Mary says, how can this be? This is how she starts. How can this be? Since I'm a virgin. She's saying, I have no husband. How can this be? And the angel says, you're not going to need one. You're not going to need a husband. Uh, what? This seems like a pretty fair question, doesn't it? This is the first aspect of Mary's response that we see. We see in her, and I'm grateful for this, we see sincere questioning. How can this be? Often the accusation against Christians is that we simply turn off our minds and just blindly believe. But that's not what Mary does, is it? When the angel shows up, she doesn't say, oh, hi, angel. Yeah, sounds good. Let's do this. No, she's greatly troubled at the saying. And it says she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. This word discern in the Greek, it's actually a word used in accounting. It means kind of to make an audit, to take an audit. And it means to be furiously rational. Mary is no low IQ fool. She's actually a reasonable human being, like hopefully we are. And when she's confronted with this strange greeting, she immediately begins to furiously question and answer in her own mind, just as we would. Is this a dream? What is this? I don't understand this greeting. Am I okay? What's going on here? And then this, this very important question, how can this be? I think often we think of ourselves as modern and intellectual and all these things. But I think if we were confronted by an angel with this type of greeting, we would be like this too. How can this be? So Mary questions. But what we see in her questions, if you look back earlier in, in chapter one, you see, uh, you see this guy, Zechariah, who um, gets this news that his wife Elizabeth is going to give birth to a baby, right? And, and he kind of responds the same way with that, how can this be? We're, we're too old. He, he protests. And as a result of this, the angel, seeing his, his doubt and his questioning, strikes him mute, unable to speak. So how is Mary different? I mean, did the angel just, ha was the angel in a different mood when he came to Mary? Was he hangry when he came to Zechariah? I, I don't know. But I think what we see actually is just a difference in the way that they respond. Let me, let me explain this to you. In, in our culture, we, uh, we highly value doubt. We think we should question everything. And on the other hand, in religious circles, sometimes we hear, don't doubt. Some of you grew up in youth groups or churches like that. How dare you doubt anything? How dare you ask any questions? If you keep asking those questions, maybe you had a youth leader who tried to strike you mute. I don't know. But here, what we see in the Bible is that doubt is neither good or bad. There are actually two kinds of doubt. There, there's a kind of doubt that is a sign of a closed mind, a kind of doubt that doesn't want any answers, that, that questions because we don't actually want to shift our life toward what the answer might possibly be. And there's a kind of doubt that actually wants answers and wants to know the truth and will ask questions sincerely 
in order to seek out what is true. There's this kind of doubt like we see in Mary in which a person is open to the truth and, and willing to give the driver's seat, give up the driver's seats if the truth is different than what she thought. And there's a kind of doubt like what we saw in Zechariah that uses all the questions, all the doubts, all the arguments just to stay in control of our life. Which kind of doubt is yours? Which kind of doubt is yours? Is it a doubt that seeks for answers? That draws near to the, the possibility that your life might have to change in response to that answer? Or is it a kind of doubt that simply wants to maintain control because the answer might actually require a change in our life? Maybe you have doubts this morning. What kind of doubt is yours? Mary responds to her doubt with sincere questioning. She's willing to receive the answer and respond to it. How will this be? Verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you in such a way that the child in your womb will not just be a holy person, but rather the holiness of God himself taking human form. This will be God himself assuming the human nature. And so once her question is answered and, and as Mary responds, we see in her a response that I'll simply call surrender. Surrendered service. The angel tells her, behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Listen to her response. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This really stood out to me this week as Mary responds to this. She doesn't say, behold, I'm here to serve. Behold, I, I will do this, I'll serve you. This answer, in it, she reveals her identity. I am the servant of the Lord. I think in, in some senses, this is exactly why God came to her to bear this son, because she knows who she is. At the core of her being, I am this. I'm a servant of the Lord. Mary knows what type of reputation and life potentially await her, and, and yet she says, if it's a life of disgrace for me, to serve him, that's who I am. That's what I do. I'll take it. I am your servant. She drops her conditions. She submits control of her life. She takes her hands off the wheel and she doesn't know how this is all going to play out, but she simply trusts God and says, let it be. If you want to become a Christian, if you've been drawn to the Lord over the last weeks, months, years, and you're here today, all you have to do is the same thing. Simply let go of control of your life and say to God, let it be, I am your servant. I'm yours. We turn over the, the keys, so to speak, of our life to him. We take our hands off our life and say, if you've really done this for me, if you really are this to me, if you're really my savior and my Lord, no more conditions, have your way. I'll follow you wherever you lead me. Wherever you take me will be all right with me, with me. Are you willing to say that? Mary was an impoverished, unknown young woman. And yet 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years later, everyone knows her name. We all know her name. We all know Mary now. Why? Because she humbled herself. Because she humbled herself and became a servant of God. She became one of the greatest people in the history of the world. We know the end of the story. We know that what Jesus did in dying on the cross in our place, we know that he conquered sin and death. 
But what's so amazing about Mary is her humble submission to the will of God, not knowing at all that Jesus would lay down his life for her. She laid down her life in service to God to submit to the will of the Father. And yet, with all that Mary did, and can we be honest, Mary, it's pretty amazing what she did. She carried, delivered, nurtured, and raised the Son of God. She left her reputation in the dirt, willing to serve him if that's what was required. And yet, as we marvel at Mary, that son that she bore, Jesus, did so much more. She left her comfort, her plans, and her reputation. But he, God Almighty, left his throne on high. He became a human being. He took his hands off his life and laid them out on a cross for us. He became a servant. He humbled himself, humbled himself even unto death on a criminal's cross. So so as we question, how are we to respond to this? Jesus was obedient to his father through ultimate suffering because of his love for us. Mary was obedient to her father's will despite not knowing what the outcome would be. And so for us, this is an invitation to submit our lives anew to our Father. And whether we really feel it this morning or not, whether we really want to or not, to simply declare with our words and then our lives this, I am your servant. Let it be done to me according to your will. I'm gonna pray right now. And the band can come on up. There's more to come today as we come back to worship this evening, but let's pray right now. Heavenly Father, we see in Mary a good example, certainly, of of surrendered service, of a a sincere heart before you. And Lord, what a wonder it is that she got to experience this life of, of raising the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace. And Lord, I pray that this morning as we reflect on on what she did, I I pray that our eyes would not stop there, but that our eyes would continue to, to be directed to the cross of Christ. Lord, you were born that man might be born again. You died for our sin so that we may no longer die, but can have eternal everlasting life through you. God, I pray that we would turn our hearts in belief toward you that we would let go of control of our lives and submit to you. Lord, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for the good news that it it brings. We thank you for the light bursting into darkness. And Lord, that you chose to become radically vulnerable for the sake of loving us, being with us, entering into our weakness and brokenness. We could never thank you enough. Yet we glorify you this morning and we praise you for you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.